No, we're not doing Judges today. We will jump back into that, Lord willing, next week. Keith is going to pick up on the second half of Gideon's life, and we'll find out whether or not he remains faithful in the end. But um, for various reasons, I'm going to preach this week on Ephesians chapter 1, because I love this passage, and it'll give us a nice break. Uh, Nobody gets stabbed through. No heads get cut off, no blood and guts and other things that I won't mention except when I'm reading exactly what Scripture says. Uh, But I want to give you a heads up that this passage is quite a different kind of passage than than many other places in Scripture, not only because it's a different genre. And isn't it interesting that that the Bible has so many different kinds of literature? I mean, we can read such fascinating stories, we get you know, great poetry, as Curtis read, and then we also get letters and instructions. I'm glad it's all not the same. But this passage is even different, not just because of the genre, but because of the subject. Ephesians 1, we will see, is all about God. Oh, isn't the whole Bible about God? You say, well, yes, the whole Bible's about God. But, but Ephesians 1 is about God uniquely, particularly, um, And therefore, in preaching this passage, I'm going to talk about God for the next 40 minutes, or thereabouts. There's not going to be a lot of so-called practical application. No tricks for a better marriage, no how to raise your kids. This passage is intense, sustained treatment on God. Now, if you read, and I don't assume you have, but if you did happen to read some books on how to give sermons out there in the world, uh, a lot of people might say that's not really a good idea. I hope you don't conclude that by the end of this. Um, but, uh, but what people say in a lot of books out there today is that if you really want people to listen to sermons, you've got to, you've got to talk about their felt needs. And if you want to talk about God at all, you need to show them how God is going to fix their felt needs. Well, that might make sermons easier to listen to, and that might you know, help people to, uh, to pay attention. But, but what if there's a fundamental flaw in that? Because what if the way Scripture talks about God, he's never there to meet your felt need? That's not why he exists. What if he actually is the end goal? What if history is actually working out according to his purpose, not ours? What if the biggest thing going on in life is not how our felt needs are going to be met, but the glory of God? Let me read to you an introduction of a similar kind of sermon by one Charles Spurgeon. He explains why the Christians should be most concerned about studying God. Spurgeon is much more eloquent than I am, so I think this will be helpful for us. He writes this, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. He means by that the Trinity. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. Divinity is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects, when we understand them, can leave us with a self 
content kind of feeling, and we go on our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, the doctrine of God, we find that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle's eye cannot see its heights, and we are humbled. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. Beautifully written, isn't it? I think Spurgeon is on to something. The subject that we're going to look at is not practical in the sense that it is a means to some other end. Rather, it is practical in the sense that it is the end. The Westminster Confession states that the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That that means that there's something greater in life than our felt needs, than us. And if we want to do what we ought to do as humans created by God, we would turn our attention towards Him. After all, the thing we're going to do in heaven is enjoy God, and it's been said that no one ever gets to heaven who doesn't want to be there. So let's learn about the nature of God and let our hearts and minds be stirred to want to know Him and want to seek Him. But first, let's pray. Lord, we we come to You And we understand in some sense that you are the great God. But yet, in our experience, we constantly strive after lesser things. Lord, we confess that we act as if if money is a God, as if sex is a God, as as if our friends are gods, as if our children are gods. We act as if the approval of others is the greatest thing in the world. We act as if everything but you deserves our sustained worship and attention. Lord, forgive us for this. Forgive us for this for the sake of Christ, we pray. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to think rightly about you. Cause us to understand that you are the God overall. That you are the one who has everything under your control. And we pray that you would demonstrate who you are in the way you are working in our hearts this morning, that you are making dead hearts alive by the power of your Spirit. Make us see you. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning. We pray especially for the mothers who are here as they work day in and day out, sometimes a hard job, but a good job. We pray you would sustain them, give them wisdom and comfort and joy. Help them rest in your greatness. Lord, we pray that you would also help us grow as a community of believers. Lord, help us be willing to share embarrassing things about ourselves. Lord, give us the humility to be able to learn from one another. Let us be able to receive correction and let us be able to graciously give correction in a way that honors you. Lord, we know that we're not perfect. We know that there is sin in our lives. So Lord, we pray that we would stop pretending as if we are perfect and have everything together as we relate to one another. Lord, help us use one another in the body of Christ as we grow together into the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you, too, that we're not the only church that believes your gospel in this area. We thank you for Wallace Presbyterian Church down the road. We pray that you would continue to grow their outreach among college students. We pray that as your gospel is proclaimed there this morning by Pastor Scott, that you would create life in people. And Lord, we pray you create life in us as we turn our attention to your word. So give us clear understanding. We pray that what is spoken about your word would be true and would be clear. And that we would believe it and then repent of our unbelief. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 14. 
And if uh, you're using a Bible in the pew or one you've purchased over in the hall, it's uh, in, on page 976. This is what Paul writes to the believers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, do you see what I mean there about that this passage is about God in a unique way? It's really about God's purpose, isn't it? It's about His goal. It's about what God did before even time began. And it's about what God is doing and going to do to bring history to a close, to a culmination. It's about how, in doing all of this, God receives glory. Now, I think this passage is kind of divided up into three sections, which we'll talk about, but each of those sections is really concluded, and what marks each section is the phrase, to the praise of His glory. We read, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. So, you see, in the end, instead of the object of, of, instead of God being the object of our practical application, that, that we make use of God for some greater good, Instead, it's the case that we are God's practical application. God makes use of us for the praise of his glory, for his greater good. You see, it's not about us. It's about God. Now, one of the first things I think that really underscores that is the the Trinitarian structure of this passage. I told you it's all going to be about God, right? So we're we're thinking about God for, for this message. And we see here this passage is incomprehensible without understanding at least something of the Trinitarian nature of God. You see, what's evident in this passage is that God is not just generic deity, okay? He is three members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, acting in unity with one another for their glory, for His glory. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might not really hear much about the Trinity, except for you know, the movie Matrix or something. Um, But let me just briefly explain what it is, uh, at least describe how the Bible talks about it. We can't understand it completely. Uh, But but the Trinity is the fact that there is one God. Okay, that's the starting point. In the Old Testament, we read, behold, your God is one. And that's a very important statement. 
The logic of that passage is that because God is one and not divided, neither should our worship of him be divided. Because God is whole, because God is one, he, he can be trusted not to change his mind. And we should therefore bank everything upon him and live our lives faithful to him. And then we learn, primarily from the New Testament, that this one God is the Father, is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. This one God is three persons. Now, a question might come to your mind, okay, but tell me, in the end of the day, is God really one nature, or is God really three persons? In other words, is it the case that that God looks like he's three on the surface, but if you kind of go back deep enough, you get one at the end, sort of like a tree that might have three stalks that come up. But, you know, if you, you really pull back the dirt, you see it's, it's at the end of the day one tree. Or is it the case that, that God uh, looks like he's one, but then if you kind of pull back the layers, he's actually three? Well, which is it? Is the one primary ultimate or is the three ultimate? Well, the answer, according to the Bible, is that both are equally ultimate. God is one fundamentally, and God is three fundamentally, and and you can't get behind the one to the other. It's rather, as, as one pastor put it, whenever I think of the three, I'm driven to the one, and whenever I think of the one, I'm driven to the three. Now, you might say, well, wait, but that doesn't make any sense. There, you've got it. No, it can't make sense to our human minds. But we're talking about God. And, and of course, God's not going to make sense completely to our human minds, or he wouldn't be God. This tri-unity is not something that we can comprehend completely exhaustively. But that's because we're talking about God. Now, understanding the Trinity, at least to some extent, let's go back now and see how each member of the Trinity is working in this passage. So first we have the Father. Notice in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father gets his identity as Father. Notice this, this is important. He's first Father not because he relates to us as Father. That's not where he derives his, his fatherly identity. Derived isn't really the best word there anyway. But that's not where his fatherly identity comes from. Rather, He is Father because he is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an identity that he has had from all eternity. It never began. And then he extends this fatherly care to us in the way he treats us in the plan of salvation. Notice what we see here. I'll just summarize it. We see that the Father is the source, the origin, the fountainhead of all blessings for our salvation. The Father is the planner. He is the architect. So verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we read, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the Father is the source of all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Verse 4, even as he, again the Father, has chose us in him before the foundation of the world. End of verse 4, that in love he, that is the Father, predestined us for adoption. Think about this, just to, to compare here. Many, many earthly adoption plans fail because of situations outside the Father's control, right? But is that going to happen with God? No. Look at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In the context, that's an inheritance we obtain because we are God's sons. We have obtained an inheritance 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, there's a lot of according to in that passage. But, but the main thing that Paul is saying here is actually very clear. It's redundantly clear. I think of, look at those words, purpose, control, and will. Uh, they're, they're pretty close in meaning, right? They're even closer in meaning in the Greek. So what Paul is really saying here is that we are predestined, that is, prepared ahead of time, according to the will of him who wills all things according to his will. Which is basically to say that God guarantees that our adoption as his sons will come through because God is the one who plans all things according to his will. Nothing happens outside of God's will. So if God has willed we be adopted as sons, it will happen. It's clear. It's redundantly clear at this passage. And what we also see in this passage is God stretching forth all the way back before time began, saying what his plan is, and then we see God bringing that plan to completion through his son. This plan really accomplishes two realities. One, it accomplishes our salvation, as we see so clearly, and at the same time, it accomplishes Christ as established as the absolute king, the one in whom all things uh, consist. Friends, the question for you to consider, excuse me, is do you appreciate the Father's unique role in planning salvation? Do you appreciate the absolute security that his sovereign will brings to your salvation? One person once told me that she kind of thought of God the Father as sort of like vanilla ice cream, which meant it was kind of boring and if you wanted to add something interesting you had to, about God, you had to turn to the Son and the Spirit. Sort of like you might add you know, chocolate or whatever you want to ice cream. The Father is just sort of generic deity, but the Son and the Spirit, well, they're the, the interesting members of the Trinity. They're, they're the ones who have color. Well, friends, I'd encourage you not to think of it that way. The Father's not just generic deity. He's, he's the Father. He has a distinct role in our salvation, a distinct plan that he is doing for his own glory. He is the source, the origin, the architect, the one upon whom it all depends. And he does this for the praise of his glory. So do you praise him for that? Do you praise him for who he is as the father? Now, we consider the son. And he is the son of the father. So once again, the the identity of the son is not just something he took on when he came to the earth. The, The father said, hey, somebody needs to be the son and go down and save those people. And I'll do it. Okay, you're the son. It's not like that. He's eternally the son. He's never not been the son. His identity as son is derived not from what he does for us. It's derived because of his relationship to the father. And he has a central role in our salvation because he is the one that it all comes through. He is the one who accomplishes it. So notice, uh, I'll read... Look through some of these passages. Verse 3. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Whenever you see in in this passage, it's always the Son after that. Because it is in the context of the Son, through the Son, that that this is accomplished. Verse 4. We are chosen in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Verse 6. The glory of God's grace is displayed in. In the beloved, that is Christ. He is the beloved. He's the beloved son. 
Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, the mystery is revealed and set forth in Christ. Verse 10, God's goal is to bring everything into unity through Christ. It is all summed up in him. Verse 11, in him we have an inheritance. Verse 13, in him, in Christ, we are sealed with the Spirit. Now, friends, you you might think, okay, well, this is what we've talked about before. This is that idea of union with Christ. It is the idea that, you see, when God saves sinners, he doesn't just save them individualistically, individually, and construct a unique plan of salvation for everyone so they are saved kind of by themselves. Friends, if if that were the way God did it, it wouldn't in the end be salvation because we would be left all by ourselves. and, And that's not salvation at all. Rather, when God saves us, what he does is he brings us in Christ and we are saved through him. The logic of the Bible of the New Testament is that God has a loving relationship with his son. He he wants to heap blessings upon his son and then we get those blessings when we are in Christ, when we are chosen in him, when we are blessed in him, when we are seated with him, in him, in the heavenly places. Look here at the beginning, uh, verse 4. The Bible says here that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now think about it. How are we going to be holy and blameless? Especially before God. Uh, If you think you're holy and blameless, just ask the person you live with. Or better yet, contemplate how you stand before the holy and righteous God. How are we going to be holy and blameless before him? Well, it's answered in the very next verse. Verse 5. In love, he has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The way we stand before God as holy and blameless is because we are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And you've got to understand there's a little bit of a difference between adoption as we would normally think of it and adoption here. In a normal adoption process, what happens? The the mother and father go out and they add another child to their family. It's it's a great reality, a great thing. And Christians, there's tons of reasons why Christians should be excited about that. Um, But when they do that, they don't act through one of their children to do it, right? The parents just do it sort of on their own. And then the, the child, when he or she comes into their family, stands alongside the other children And all of them would really rise or fall in the parents' eyes on their own merit, right? And just normally how families would work. But that's not how this this family works. That's not how God works. Because what we see here is that we are adopted through the Son. We come into this divine family of sorts by coming through the Son. We would never be in the family on our own. We're not holy and blameless, but we are as we come through the Son. And when we come through the Son, God treats... It's that we, we don't just rise and fall according to our own merit. We rise and fall according to the merit of Christ. And because of who Christ is, we just rise. It says we are seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places in Christ. We get exalted through the Son. Because we come in Christ and through Christ. And the reason why we are adopted by Christ is because of what Christ did on the cross. In him we have redemption. Redemption means to be purchased 
back from somebody, purchased back. We hear today in the news people talk about should, uh, should the U.S. government or other private citizens uh, pay a ransom price to get people who are captured by terrorists back? Well, whether or not they should, that's kind of the idea here in that Jesus redeems us. Jesus pays the ransom price for us. He pays the, the price for our release from the bondage of sin and death. And, and this is, and, and what he does to do it, it's, it's not by giving money. It's redeemed by his blood. He dies on the cross to take the penalty that we deserve. God has a penalty against us for our sin. So the way to redeem us, to rescue us back, is for, is for Christ to take the punishment in our place. And this is for the forgiveness of sins. Note here how much, and you kind of rely on what I already said about the passage when I read it, what you remember about it. You might realize that the way Paul talks about forgiveness of sins, he's super excited about this. I mean, he uses words like what God has lavished on us to the praise of the glory of his grace. He is really excited about this. I wonder if you have that same amazement and excitement about the forgiveness of sins. Does that excite you? I wonder if one of the reasons why it might not excite you is you kind of take it for granted. I know I kind of start to. We hear so much about forgiveness of sins, we kind of think, oh, that's just what God does. And it's like we have a right to it, a constitutional right. I have a constitutional right to have my sins forgiven by God. Some might even go far to think they have a pretty good relationship worked out with God where they enjoy sinning and God enjoys forgiving their sins. So if it's somehow mutually beneficial. But, but Paul doesn't think that way in this passage. Listen here. Follow this line of argument. I think it will help you understand God better. Uh, for God to be God, he must punish sin. Okay? That, that is perfectly in keeping with God's holiness and love. There is no way we could imagine a world in which God is God, who, how he reveals himself in Scripture... And, yet, and there is sin, and God not punish sin. That world just cannot exist. It would mean God is not God. God doesn't have a choice but to punish sin, because he must act according to his character, and his character will not change. But friends, listen to this. God's ex- decision to extend forgiveness to us is not like that. We could imagine a world in which God is exactly who he is now, in his essence and his character, and he choose not to forgive our sins. Not forgiving our sins would not change God's essential nature one bit. He would still be all good, still be all holy, still be all just, and still be all loving. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that anything hangs in the balance now. God, having decided to forgive our sins based on the blood of Christ, is duty-bound to do that because he's promised to, and he is faithful and just to his promises. If God were to go back on his promises, well, that would infringe upon his character. He would no longer be God. But the point is, we ought not to think that God had to make those promises in the first place. And the fact that he did should raise us all the more to see his his lavish grace, his lavish love, I think that's the cause of Paul's emo- intensely emotional and, and you know, extravagant language that he uses here to talk about the forgiveness of God's grace. Friends, I wonder, do you use that kind of language in your prayers when you thank God for his grace? 
Do you see it as lavish grace? Think about the biggest problem in your life right now. Think about how big that problem would compare to if God had decided not to forgive your sins. And then think of your problem in a different light. Whatever it is, it's not nearly as big of a problem as you would have if God decided not to forgive your sins. So, so do you have that kind of joy and excitement about who God is because of what he's done? Friends, the other thing we have to realize here is that Christ's role in all this is not merely as a means of our salvation. I think we, we sometimes get the picture that we have Christ that in order for God to save us, he really had to, in some ways, disregard the welfare of Christ in order to save us. And people give some, I think, horribly wrong illustrations of maybe God's like a train conductor and, and his son is out on the tracks and he has to make a decision. Am I going to save the people or am I going to save my son? And friends, that's not at all like the situation of our salvation is like. You see, first of all, it's something that the father and son has chosen to do. It's a plan that they've made together. So it's not that the son gets gypped out of something. And second of all, more importantly, it's a plan that is for the exaltation of the son. Christ comes to the world and redeems the people, and then he is the firstborn among many brethren, the Bible says. It is for his exaltation as well. All things are united in Christ. God sends Christ to die on the cross, yes, to save the people, and in saving the people to exalt his son. Listen to uh, verse 22 of Ephesians 1. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is what God has done for Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, friends, does that sound like the father putting the needs of others above his son? No. It sounds like a father who has this plan for the exaltation and glory of his son. God's plan, as I said before, does two main things. One, it is for the salvation of the people. And two, it is for the exaltation of the Son. And realize that these two are not at odds, but they work out in perfect harmony. As the Father exalts His Son by preparing a holy people for His Son. And the Father saves us by exalting His Son. Friends, let's let's praise the Father for thinking of that plan. And praise the Son for putting that plan into place. Finally, we turn to the Spirit. There, you might, appear, might first appear that there's less about the Holy Spirit than the other members of the Trinity. But, but really, what we have about the Spirit pervades everything else. Notice verse 3. When it says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing, I believe that is referring to the Holy Spirit there. And many commentators do as well. So, so you could make that S capital if you want in your Bibles. Because I think it really should be. It is not just spiritual as opposed to not physical. It is spiritual as in pertaining to the Holy Spirit. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you see, everything that we receive that is good in our salvation comes through Christ. See, we said before, our salvation is us being in Christ. But you have to understand, the way in which we're in Christ, our connection to Christ, is the Holy Spirit. It is that Christ's Spirit is shared with us, so we are one Spirit with Him. Therefore, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, there there would be no salvation. The Spirit's not just something that God adds to give you an emotional punch to your salvation, as some people think of it. The Spirit is what makes our salvation possible. 
We also read that the Spirit is the seal, which is the promised Holy Spirit. It, it's a sign of our fellowship. And think of it this way. If um, the President of the United States or any President writes a letter, he or she often puts a seal on that letter, right? And that gives authority to the letter and is kind of a sign, don't tamper with this letter. It comes from a high source. Friends, that's what the Spirit is for us. It's like demonic forces, stay away. God's saying, this one's mine. We're sealed with the Spirit. And the Spirit is a guarantee that that what God has begun in us, He will bring to completion. The word guarantee there is a legal word. It it means that it will happen. Um, Interestingly, it's actually the modern Greek word for engagement ring. So if you go to to Greece and you ask for an engagement ring, you would use this same word that occurs in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek Bible. Uh, I hesitate somewhat to use that illustration, though, because in our modern world, I mean, engagements can be broken, marriages can even be broken. It doesn't feel that solid. However, we have to imagine a world in which it is solid, and God wants it to be solid in the church as well. But uh, it it is absolutely solid. So when God gives us that promise, he says it's going to happen. It's going to be certain. We can bank on that. Now, friends, how do we receive this sealing? How do we benefit from those promises? Well, look here at verse 13. In him, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. Friends, we're included because of our belief. God's planning of salvation from eternity past does not erase the need for you, when you hear the gospel, to actually believe it. How do those two things work together? God plans it and I have to believe. Well, we've already said God's a mystery that we can't understand, so why would we expect to be able to have these two ideas fit perfectly in our minds either? But the point of it all is if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what you need to hear. That you need to believe the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, which is basically saying, I'm going to rely upon the Father, Son, and Spirit to do what they've promised to do in saving me. Okay, so we've seen the Trinity. We've seen what the Father, Son, and the Spirit are doing. Briefly, wow, we're talking about this. Time's going by very quickly. But let's just, let me briefly step back and kind of look at it from a distance here. Whenever I look at a passage about the Trinity, what I come away with, most impressed by, is the interaction between themselves of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I just, it's amazing to to contemplate the Father, Son, and the Spirit, not just acting in relationship to me, acting together. This is the eternal Father, the, the glorious Son, the powerful Spirit. They interact together. They do things with one another. I think it's fascinating. What must that be like? I think, you know, just weak analogy, but, you know, here on earth... We have things like the G8 summit, the most powerful eight nations getting together, and I think now it's the G7. They they kick one of them out. Um, But when they meet, it makes the news, right? Because they're so powerful, when they they interact, wars start. Economies crash. But friends, that's child's play compared to what, what happens when the members of the Trinity interact. And the beautiful thing about the Trinity is that they are in complete unity. Unlike the G7 now, right, where there's bickering and there's jockeying for power and manipulation. I mean, that's just going to happen amongst people in this world. But instead, what we see in God is perfect unity, perfect fellowship. 
They're, they're working for the praise of each other's glory. The ancient church had a great description of this. They called it a dance. And, and think about what they mean by it being a dance is that when there is a dance, there are two bodies moving in perfect harmony with each other, right? I watched the movie recently, Shall We Dance? And it's about a man who, who comes to love the beauty of ballroom dancing. He learns that it's beautiful because, not because the two bodies do the exact same thing, but they do different things with each other that makes them act as one. If they were doing the same thing, they would step all over each other and they wouldn't be coordinated. But they do different things with one another to bring about this perfect unity and oneness. And that describes what the members of the Trinity do. They each do their role. They each do their job in perfect harmony with the other so they act as one. We see that in this passage. Remember I said that there's, there's kind of three paragraph divisions in this passage. One, each paragraph focuses on one member of the Trinity. However, all the members of the Trinity are all throughout the whole passage because you can't talk about what one member of the Trinity is doing without bringing it into relation of what the other member is doing. They do it as one. They do it together. Perhaps you've seen maybe ballroom dancing or figure skating, pairs figure skating, and you think, well, that's amazing. Well, friends, to an infinitely higher degree, we should look at what God is doing in his Trinitarian unity and say, that's amazing. That's what Paul is doing when three times he says it all is to the praise of God's glory. Well, let me give you one implication, and then I'll give you one point of application. Here's the implication. We need to not think of God as being lonely before the creation of the world. From time to time, I've heard people say, well, God created us because he was lonely. But the problem with thinking God needed to create us because he's lonely is that then we're also going to say that God needed to save us so he wouldn't be lonely again. And then God ends up being, or then we end up being, rather, like the kind of you know, spoiled child who says to his, his parents, you've got to do something for me because otherwise you don't love me. And God ends up being that kind of desperate parent who wants the the child's love, so he has to do whatever the child says. Friends, God's not like that. God's not desperate for our love. Rather, we are desperate for his love. And only when we realize that can we realize the freeness of the grace that God has given us in Christ. And what is really amazing is that in that dance between the Father, Son, and Spirit, they choose to involve us at all. They really call us onto the dance floor. We're not just spectators in this infinitely glorious dance. We're also participants because they call us to be involved. They call us to participate in the plan of salvation. That's why we have to believe and give them glory. Praise God for that. Well, friends, application is this. Do you think of God this way? Friends, pray that you would. Pray that you would see God for who he is and go, wow. Pray that you would learn to understand him in this way. Look down at verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul prays this, which I think is based upon what he's just said before. Paul writes, I do not cease to uh, to give thanks for you, remembering you always in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. By the way, do you see the Trinity there? The God who's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, may give you a spirit. See? 
And this is what he prays. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, when he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand of the heavenly places. Now, friends, I don't have time to go into this now. Um, but, but if you, you notice this passage, it, it talks about three things that Paul prays we would know. All these three things correspond to the, the three different kind of Trinitarian paragraphs of the, what we looked at before. You study that on your own and kind of try to make the connection. But the point of it all is Paul is praying that we would know this reality. Friends, Paul doesn't pray for things that are just you know, automatically going to happen. The fact that Paul is earnestly praying for this means that we ought to earnestly pray for this too. And we should strive to think of God rightly for who he is. It'll make a difference in all of our lives. One person put it this way. He said, what a person thinks of God, that is the most important thing about him. What a person thinks of God, that is the most important thing about him. So friends, you've got to think of God rightly. You've got to think of God rightly. Let's pray that we would. Father, we, we thank you that you are the Father that you have a plan. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming down to fulfill that plan perfectly. And we thank you that it is a plan to the praise of your glory that we might, for all of eternity, appreciate you and that all of history is summed up in you. And we thank you, Spirit, that you make it all happen. You unite us to Christ. Oh, God, cause us to think deeply about these things and to think of you rightly that we may enjoy you and give you praise, glory, and honor. Lord, don't let us think of our salvation lightly, our redemption lightly. Don't let us take the forgiveness of sins for granted. But Lord, cause us to have this this lavish thanks and lavish praise for all that you've done for us and in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.